Thank you so much. If you would turn to Acts chapter 4. This is one of those passages that just in the course of going through our rotation of looking at Daniel, Revelation, 1 Corinthians, and Acts that I uh, came to realize that this probably is the next passage we should look at. And then I realized that it's going to be Valentine's Day tomorrow, and that's going to be something that's going to be on our minds. And I at first thought, well, I'm not sure this passage will fit in very well with that. And you may afterwards still think it doesn't fit in very well, but we'll see because um, the interesting thing about the scripture is that all of it is pointing us to God, and God is love. And so one way or the other, all of scripture is pointing us toward God and toward the God who is love and the God who calls us to love. And so I hope we'll see that as we go through uh, this passage this morning. It's always great, I think, after uh, sharing in prayer time, as we hear the word of God, to ask the question, how does this word that we're hearing relate to what I just heard, shared, and prayed about? It's always a great question. Another good question in light of this passage this morning is, uh, what kind of person do your close relationships encourage you to be? What kind of person do your close relationships encourage you to be? And this passage we're going to look at, which starts at verse 32 of chapter 4, and we'll go through verse 16 of chapter 5, has both a positive uh, side and a negative side. And hopefully we'll see how both of those are meant to encourage us to love as God calls us to love. And so in light of Valentine's Day tomorrow, which is a celebration of love, like I said earlier, of all kinds, obviously between husband and wife, in romantic relationships before marriage, uh, in friendships, and um, even between parents and children, all kinds of love relationships are celebrated now on Valentine's Day. And as Christians, uh, we love the celebration of love. And yet, defining love and walking out love are very challenging in our day and time for a number of different reasons. And so, I want to just remind us of some very basic responses to the gospel as a way of getting into this passage and thinking about it in terms of love. But the Bible tells us that God created us, and and Brian read about creation. Um, God created us uh, to be holy and happy. Uh, He gave us all good things that we might enjoy them, to be truly happy. But he also made us to be holy, created us in his image that we might be like he is. And so holiness and happiness go together. The problem is we're not holy or happy. We're not as holy as we should be and we're definitely not as happy as God intended for us to be. And our unhappiness is connected to our unholiness. And so what did God do? He sent Jesus that we might become holy and be forgiven for not being holy and that we might find our happiness in him that God intended when he created us. And so the question is, what is our response to that good news that God sent his son to uh, rescue us from what we've done uh, to destroy uh, the world that God put us in? Well, first of all, he calls us to turn from sin to God. And we'll see in this passage how in one sense the believers and 
the early church were turning from sin and turning to God. And then there's a couple. That's an example of not turning from sin as they should have. We're called to turn from sin to God and trust Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And on the basis of that foundation, we're called to rest in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and for righteousness. That's what pardon and perfection refer to. And ultimately, that means to rest in Jesus for the assurance that God loves me fully and will love me forever. That's what that means. We're to hope in God for the help and happiness we need. We'll see that the couple that's referenced in this passage was not looking to God for their help and their happiness. They had gotten off track at best. And then lastly, uh, based on our resting in Jesus and our hoping in God, we're to pursue love, not in submission to to what the world says is love, but in submission to God's word and in submission to God's sovereign will. In whatever circumstance he puts me in, I'm to ask myself, how does God's word call me to love in these circumstances? And so we're called to pursue love. And so Valentine's Day, that's a good Christian holiday from that perspective. We're called to pursue love. The question is, how does this part of scripture encourage us to do that? And the basic point that I want to hit on in a number of ways for the time that I have left is we can pursue love, and I put it in quotes because it may not be actually love that we're pursuing according to God. We can pursue love in a way that is a sin worthy of death or in a way that shows the heart of God. And both of those things are reflected in this passage. So let me read for us, beginning in verse 32 of chapter 4, Uh, which describes the early church in the first century after the Lord Jesus has risen from the dead and gone to heaven and um, the gospel is being preached and declared and the church is growing. In verse 32 it says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. 
Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed." This is the word of God. Well, the first thing that I want to point out is in the section in chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. And the way that I want to characterize it is in this passage we see, or this part of the passage, we see the voluntary generosity of the Christian community. And I want to emphasize voluntary generosity. We see in verse 32, it says, "...in the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul." They were unified. And so what's being talked about here is the unity that the early church had, that they were united, that they were united in trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior and living to please Him, and therefore they were united in doing what the Lord Jesus called them to do, called, calls us to do, which is to love one another, as He said, even as I have loved you. And they were united in that. It says, Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Which means, in their minds, all that they had was available to other believers in the church as needed. It goes on to say, And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Which means the great power refers to the signs and wonders that are talked about later on in the passage that we read. And they were giving testimony to the gospel that Jesus lived, died, rose again, and he offers salvation to all those who will turn from their sin and entrust themselves to him as Lord and Savior. And then it says, and abundant grace was upon them all. Abundant grace for what? It says in verse 34, for there was not a needy person among them. And it appears to be saying the abundant grace didn't simply refer to the miracles that were being worked, but it referred to the miracle of people being willing to let go of what they've got to give to other people who are in need. That there wasn't a needy person among them meant that there wasn't a person who lacked basic necessities. It doesn't mean that they were trying to make everybody equal. Everybody had the same income. Everybody had the same stuff. That's not what they were doing. But they were concerned that everyone uh, had the basic necessities that they needed for life, that nobody was uh, 
hungry and thirsty and without clothing and those kinds of things. And so God was giving them an abundance of grace to be generous, to voluntarily let go of what they had that they might meet the needs of those in the body of Christ. It says, For all who are owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, which meant they simply gave the apostles control of that. That's what that means. And they would be distributed to each as any had need, which again meant that if there were those who were lacking basic necessities, they would take that uh, money that came from the sale of those properties and give people what they needed. And so that's the picture that we have, is that people were more than willing, by God's grace, to meet people's needs. And then um, we have Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, giving us an example of someone who did that, uh, which is Barnabas, who sold a piece of land, and he gave the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, a lot of people will look at this and say, see, um, the early Christians were communists, or the early Christians were socialists. Well, that's not true because both communism and socialism is about the government taking stuff from you in order to give it to other people. There's no, no taking going on here. The apostles didn't take stuff from the believers and force them to give it to other people in the church. It was voluntary. It was by God's grace that people were voluntarily doing that. And so what we find here is that there was a spirit of sharing uh, that's what the word fellowship means. When we read the word uh, in the Greek, is koinonia. It means a sharing together or, or a partnership. And we're called into fellowship with each other as believers, which means I share my life with you, you share your life with me. I share my resources with you, you share your resources with me. I share my gifts with you, you share your gifts with me. That it's a sharing together that God has called us to participate in. And therefore, the picture of the, the Christian life is not, you know, me and Jesus in my Bible on an island somewhere. It's very much being a part of a community in which we share what we have with one another uh, for the glory of God. Well, Barnabas is an example of that in terms of the sharing of material things. Here, as we go on in chapter 5, we see the opposite. We see an exception to the rule. So Barnabas is an example, and Ananias and Sapphira are an exception. They're an exception to all that was going on, which is kind of a way of communicating that as as great as it sounds, like things were in the early church, they were not perfect, which is a good thing to remember, because sometimes people will read the book of Acts and think, Boy, things in the book of Acts were just perfect. If we just get back to that. Well, the reality is there are no perfect churches. There, there weren't perfect churches in the first century, and there are not perfect churches now. And that's a good reminder for all of us. Well, in um, Acts 5, verses 1 and following, what we find in, in the first 11 verses is what I would want us to think about in terms of the righteous and kind divine church discipline. And I use those words very carefully. The righteous and kind divine church discipline. Because what we see in verse 1 is we see Ananias and his wife Sapphira who do what Barnabas did, sold a piece of property, but they did not do what Barnabas did. 
Artemis sold the property. He, he told the body that he was giving all that he gained from that sale for those who were poor in the body. They sold a piece of property and they told the body, we're giving all that we gained from this sale to the body for the poor in the church. And that was a lie. And so what we see is that it wasn't just Ananias who kept back some of the price for himself, as it says in verse 2, which a lot of people connect that to the story in the Old Testament of Achan. Because in the Greek Old Testament, the phrase for kept back is the same phrase that's used in Joshua 7.1, where it talks about breaking faith, how Achan broke faith with God, and he kept back some of the possessions that were dedicated to God that were not supposed to be kept back. And so a lot of people will tie that incident to what's happening here in a sense that Ananias kept back some of the price for himself that he said had been dedicated to God. And it wasn't just his uh, plan, it was his wife's plan. It says with his wife's full knowledge, which implies that she was totally on board with what was happening. And Peter's response in verse 3 is to say, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And so Satan's brought into the scene, that Satan's playing a role in what is taking place and what is taking place through Ananias and Sapphira. And then uh, Peter makes it clear there wasn't any coercion going on in the early church. There wasn't any socialism, wasn't any communism. He says in verse 4, wasn't the property that you had um, yours, which meant it didn't belong to the church, it belonged to them. They had private property. And he says, wasn't it under your control even after you sold it? It was still something that you could do whatever you wanted to do with. And the answer to both those questions is yes, it was your property, it wasn't the church's property. Even after you sold it, you could have done anything you wanted to with it. There was no compulsion from God or from the church for you to do what you uh, did. And he says, so why have you conceived this deed in your heart? Which is a way of saying that you can't blame Satan for what happened, even though Satan's involved. You conceived this deed in your heart. And he says, ultimately, you're not just lying to me. You're not just lying to men. You're lying to God. The apostles were the representatives of Christ on earth. The Pope claims to be, but he's not. The apostles truly were. They were the representatives of Christ on earth. They spoke with Christ's authority. They acted with Christ's authority. They led the early church with Christ's authority. So to lie to Peter was to lie to God and to lie to the Holy Spirit uh, in Peter. And it says at that point that Ananias died. And the close connection between the two is that he died because he lied to the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 5 that great fear came over all who heard of it, which doesn't necessarily mean terror, but it certainly means a healthy respect of God, a healthy understanding that God is judging my actions and I need to be concerned about whether or not they're pleasing to God or not. That's what a proper fear of God refers to. So it says they... They came right in, they picked Ananias up, and they buried him, which is very common in that day and time to be buried on the same day that you die. 
What was unusual is that they buried buried him so quickly on that day. Usually you would gather the family members and gather friends who wanted to be there, and then you would bury them on the same day. But the exception was if they understood the death to be a judgment from God, they buried them right away. And that is obviously what was going on here. And so we don't know where Ananias' wife was all this time, but she comes in after three hours, it says, and she doesn't know anything that's gone on. And Peter asked her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. It's interesting to me that God doesn't tell us what that price is, but it says such and such a price as if God didn't know. God led Luke to write, and he could have told him what the price was, but God doesn't always tell us everything that he could tell us, which is just an example of that for me. But Peter is basically challenging Sapphira and trying to find out whether or not she was in collusion with her husband. A lot of people look at that and say, why didn't, you know, uh, Peter give her more of a chance? You know, why didn't he say, you know, your husband just died for lying? Well, I believe he was being led by God to do exactly what he did. He was acting um, as a representative of Christ. And he was exposing her sin. And there was a purpose in it. And so he asked the question, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. She says, yes, that was the price. And Peter says, why is it that you agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? To put the spirit of the Lord to the test is the idea of basically uh, seeing what you can get away with. Seeing what you can uh, fly under the radar of God's omniscience. Uh, See how you can get away with things that you know God says you shouldn't be doing. That's what it means to test the Lord. And he says, why is it that you agreed together? Uh, You and your, your working together as a couple, you've agreed to do what is evil. You've agreed to do what the Lord would not have you to do. And you did it consciously. The implication is most people look at this and say, Obviously, they wanted the same kind of applause that Barnabas got for being so generous and being so unselfish. But they wanted the applause without doing what Barnabas did. They wanted to appear to be what Barnabas was without being what Barnabas was, which is the whole idea of hypocrisy in the scriptures. We're play-acting. We're not really what we're appear, we appear to be, but we want to look that way because it gains the applause of men. And so it says that Peter says, after that, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And she also died on the spot. And then it says in verse 11, great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. It's a really, really interesting story, and you have to ask yourself, what is going on here? Well, depending on who you read, some people think Ananias and Sapphira were not true Christians. Other people read it and say, I think they were true Christians. So which is it? I've wrestled with this this week, and I've come to the conclusion that God has left it deliberately ambiguous. God God doesn't clearly tell us whether they were true believers who sinned in a way that he had to discipline them for it, for good purposes. 
or whether they were just uh, play actors. They were acting like Christians in the church, which uh, Jesus said there would be wheat and tares in the church and they would be together and that's the way it is. There are people in churches who claim to be Christians but really aren't. That could be the case there as well. The reason why I think it's by God designed to be deliberately ambiguous is because um, of the result that twice Luke highlights. He says, great fear came over all but twice. He says that twice, which implies that that was the purpose that God intended for what he did. God doesn't strike everybody down who sins. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here today. God would have struck me down a long time ago. And so he doesn't strike everybody down who lies. I mean, there's the reality is God does do things at times to remind us that he is holy and sin does deserve death. And he is incredibly gracious. And so the reality is, I think, because both believers and unbelievers were struck with appropriate fear, that's exactly what God intended. He intended both unbelievers in the church and outside the church to be appropriately struck with a holy fear of God. And he intended believers to be struck with a holy fear of God and therefore a holy fear of sin. Puritans would talk about the fact that the thing you really need to be afraid of is sin. That's what you need to be afraid of because that's what's so destructive. And that's what God in various ways, I think, is illustrating here for us. In 1 Corinthians, which we're working our way through, you might remember in chapter 3, Paul makes the comment about um, the issue of destroying the body of Christ. And in verse Uh, 16 of chapter 3, he says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? When he says you, he's talking about you as a group, you as a congregation, you as a gathered uh, group of believers. He says, If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Uh, John Stott mentions the fact that on the one hand, Satan works to destroy the church from the outside, through force, through persecution. On the other hand, Satan works to destroy the church from the inside, through sin, unchecked in the body. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. There are just terrible things going on in the body in in Corinth. And he says, don't you understand that God's very concerned about how your sin against each other is destructive to the body of Christ, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Then later on in chapter 11, he'll talk about um, what was going on with the Lord's Supper in this church. And in verse uh, 29, he says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, meaning a number die, have died. He says, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. Why? So that we will not be condemned along with the world. So that means there are believers who can be sick and weak and even die. And God could do it out of love. 
We don't know about Ananias and Sapphira. We don't know exactly what category they are to fit in. But I've thought about the questions. Does God love you and me enough to take your life or my life if we are on a destructive path? That's what this story raises in terms of a question for all of us, even inside the church. The other question is, does God love those around you and I enough to take your life or my life if we are on a destructive path? So one consideration is us and what we really need. The other consideration is those around us and what they really need. You remember there's a story in the Old Testament of, uh, Old Testament of Nadab and Abihu, which were two sons of Aaron, the high priest. And right at the beginning of their ministry, they offer strange fire to the Lord, and God strikes them down on the spot. And the, the lesson Moses tells Aaron is, those who come near to God must treat him as holy. Why was that a lesson so important? It was a lesson for the whole group of Israel. It was a lesson for all the Israelites. It was a lesson for all the Levites. It was a lesson for all the priests who come near to God. The same kind of thing, I think, is going on here. God is setting an example. He's teaching a lesson. He's saying, don't think that, that somehow the gospel means I'm less holy than I really am that I'm less concerned about sin, and that I'm not willing to do whatever needs to be done to protect my people and to protect my church and to even protect individuals who have strayed so far from where they should be. So I think all of that's involved here, and it's meant to highlight for us um, the holiness of the God who loves us. Well, the last part of this passage that we looked at this morning is in verses 12 and following, 12 through 16. And I want us to think about this part of the passage in terms of the compassion of God and the compassion of his people. The compassion of God seen in the compassion of his people. Because it says in verse 12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place. At the hands of the apostles means it was through what they were doing that God was doing things. The signs and wonders and the miracles were from God. But they went through the hands of the apostles, through the lives of the apostles. And it's meant to say that whatever compassion and healing and good things that were flowing through the lives of the apostles, whatever those things were, those were ultimately from God. They were a tool In their hands. Earlier, Ananias and Sapphira, one way or the other, were a tool in the hands of Satan. Why has Satan filled your heart to do this, to bring destruction? In this part, you've got God using his people to be a tool in his hand to love people, not only believers. The first uh, passage talks about the love of God for his own people and meeting their needs. Now it goes beyond that to God loving and showing compassion to people outside the church, all those who are bringing the sick and the afflicted by the devil uh, to Peter so that even his shadow, if it falls on them, uh, heals them. There wasn't anything special about Peter's shadow, although it might have been pretty large. 
because he appears to have been a pretty big guy. At least that's the implication most people have. But it was the bigness of the God that was being reflected in his shadow. But as I said before, we want to think about the, the question of what's really going on here. And a lot of people look at what's in the book of Acts and, and think, you know, this is the way it should be right now. You know, uh, some of us should should have a shadow that falls on people. We just walk through the hospital and as our shadow falls on on them, they should be healed. And there should be all kinds of signs and wonders and all that sort of thing. And yet, if you look at how it's portrayed in the scriptures, the, the history of redemption is such that God does those things as he sees fit, when he sees fit, and it's usually tied to when he's giving some fresh revelation of himself, and he's confirming it through signs and wonders. So there's a sense in which we should not expect this to be happening among us today. But there's another sense in which we should. We should see God working through people to love us. And we should see God working through us to love people. And we should believe that that God is truly at work in all of these things. And as a result of that, as we love people in the church and outside the church, God sovereignly, by his sovereign grace, adds to the church. The last thing it says in verse 16 is that all were being healed, which reminds us of the ministry of Jesus. In the ministry of Jesus, everyone who came got healed. In this point in time in the uh, early church, everyone who comes gets healed. And what is that supposed to imply? It's supposed to say that not only what they're doing is from God, but what they're saying is from God. And it's also meant to say that the gospel is for everyone. It's for every sick person, every sick person spiritually. And every person is sick spiritually. And the gospel is for everyone. That's the point of healing everybody physically, is to say, now listen to the gospel, where Jesus can heal every one of you spiritually. And so we see God working through the apostles. Well, let me just uh, make some application as we um, wrap up here in the next uh, few minutes. One of the things that's taking place in our day and time is what I would consider, and other people have talked about it this way, um, the weaponizing of love, uh, using love as a weapon. Now, how do you use love as a weapon? We do things like what Ananias and Sapphira did to sell the property and to portray themselves as giving all of the money to the church was in the context of a loving thing to do, right? I'm meeting needs of the poor. But that wasn't their number one goal. Yeah, it would help out with the poor, but their number one goal was evidently to elevate themselves in the eyes of the body and to still do what they wanted to do with a portion of the money and to act like they were something that they were not, uh, to act like they were doing something that they weren't really doing. That's what it means to weaponize love, where you're not really pursuing love, you're pursuing your own selfish ambition in the name of love. That's what is happening to one degree or another in this whole social justice movement. How is it happening? And the church is happening in this way by saying that if you love your neighbor, you have to do these things. When the Bible doesn't say that, 
you love your neighbor, then you will accept the LGBTQ plus community standards and lifestyle. Well, God says that's not loving to accept that. But the world says you're being unloving if you don't accept it. If you don't accept the social justice movement with regard to abortion access, then you're being unloving. So what's, what's going on there? Love is being weaponized toward sin, toward selfish ambition. And we need to understand that just because people use the term love and characterize things as love, that's, from God's perspective, not necessarily what's being pursued that there's a sinful ambition being pursued, a selfish ambition that might be pursued. It all depends on how it stacks up against the word of God. Uh, just because I say this is a loving relationship or a loving thing to do um, doesn't mean it is from God's perspective. And the word of God is our only means of knowing what God would say about that. Well, the second thing that I just want to highlight is in light of Valentine's Day, Ananias and Sapphira were a married couple, and they were a married couple in the church, and they were a married couple that lived and died together. They were a married couple that agreed together to pursue evil. For whatever whatever reason, I thought about Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde were actually killed in Louisiana in the 30s after robbing some banks, many other smaller businesses, uh, kidnapping people, killing a number of people. Um, at one point, they were kind of romanticized, and people you know, thought they must have been a really neat couple because they took these funny pictures and things. And, and um, actually, uh, Bonnie was uh, quite the poet, and she wrote a poem not very long before she died that she sent to her, mo- her mother that was entitled, The Trail's End. And she said, a portion of that uh, poem says, Someday they'll go down together, and they'll bury them side by side. To a few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. So it's almost like she knew it was coming. She knew that the end of what they were doing was going to be death, because they weren't going to be taken alive, for one thing. And they were buried side by side, just like Ananias and Sapphira. Bonnie and Clyde knew that they were on a destructive path, and they knew it was going to end in death. Ananias and Sapphira at least knew that they were doing something that wasn't right, and yet they agreed and they pursued it. And so when we think about our relationships, and I kind of started off by talking about um, you know, whether or not our close relationships inside marriage, outside marriage, or whatever it might be, do they encourage us, in a sense, to live to please the Lord, or do they encourage us to get on a path that isn't pleasing to God? And as um, husbands and wives, are we helping each other live to please the Lord, or are we just somehow um, inspiring each other to, to respond wrongly? to life and wrongly to our relationships. And so the Bible encourages us. um, It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today 
so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's one of the most important functions of marriage. It's that two people come together. They come together to unite in pursuing a life that pleases God. And they are committed to being with each other until the end. And they're committed to helping one another. Now, all of us are not married, but our friendships should, close friendships should perform that kind of bond for us too, or that kind of encouragement for us. It says in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Obviously, um, Ananias didn't help Sapphira resist the evil one. And uh, Sapphira didn't help Ananias to resist Satan either. And they agreed together to do what was wrong. So what I'm saying is they're an illustration of we can pursue love in a way that is a sin worthy of death. That's what's illustrated in their death. But there is a way to pursue love that shows the heart of God. Loving people in the body that are in need, loving people outside the body that are in need, and sharing the gospel with everyone and say, there is a Savior who is an able and willing Savior for you. Well, the last thing is, I just want to highlight the title of the message, which was, um, When Love is Sin. Because I think, uh, again, I just want to emphasize the fact that we live in a day and time where we are very tempted in the church to embrace what the culture says is love rather than what God says is love. And we feel the pressure to conform to the world. Um, There's a number of illustrations. Let me just highlight a few as I wrap up here. So what I'm basically saying is love is sin. When When I say when love is sin, love is sin when we can call something love that God calls sin, number one. So if I say this relationship is love, but God says that relationship is sin, that's when love is sin, okay? Secondly, love is sin when we pursue something that is really love, but we pursue it in a sinful way. To give to the poor is a loving thing. God says it's a loving thing. But if I pursue it like Ananias and Sapphira did, For my own selfish ambition, it becomes sin, which is something we need to think about, is that God not only looks at our deeds, but he looks at the heart behind those deeds. And so there are a number of different scriptures that highlight this. Um, Obviously, the Bible talks about sin outside of marriage. As You know, if we call it love, God calls it sin. If we look at religious works, which is maybe more in tune with what we see going on in the in Acts. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 6, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. That's what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. They were doing what they were doing to be honored by men. And God says, that good thing of giving to the poor has become a sin for you. It may still do good to them, but it's a sin because of how you're approaching it. 
It even says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. doesn't say it doesn't profit anybody nothing. It may very well profit someone else. But for me, if I'm not doing it out of love, then it doesn't profit me. Because God calls us to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our failure to love and to seek to love people as God calls us to do so for his sake, for his glory, for his goal, not my selfish ambition. And in all of this, uh, we see behind this story that Jesus is jealous for his bride. The ultimate marriage, the ultimate romance, is Christ and the church. And he's preparing his bride for heaven. And he will do whatever he has to do that he might prepare his bride for heaven. And that's what he, we know he will do that because he went to the cross himself. And we know he'll do that because of what we see in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, that the Lord Jesus is jealous for his bride. And therefore, he encourages us to be serious about sin in our lives. But not just in terms of nitpicking about sin, but because we want to love like he loves. We want to love out of a heart like his, so that he is glorified and people are drawn to Christ. They're drawn to salvation through our lives as we lay them down unselfishly for the good of others. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time in your word. We pray that all of us would just think about our own lives, our own hearts, our own uh, ambitions, our own relationships in light of what your word has said to us this morning. Uh, Father, you know what each, each of us individually need to hear, how we need to be convicted, how we need to be uh, led to repentance, how we need to be encouraged, how we need to be strengthened. And I just pray, Father, that you would help us in that because uh, truly it is your goal for each of us to trust in you, Lord Jesus, as we should, and to love others like you do. And we want to be delivered from our own selfish ambition and our own sin that hinders that. And we want to lay down our lives for the good of others and for their salvation. And we do pray that you would help us all to be concerned about that and to pray in light of that and to work out our salvation in light of that with a healthy fear of you and a healthy fear of sin, but not a terror of you, but a a rejoicing in your love for us, a resting in your love for us, and a a desire to um, respond to that love appropriately. And so please help us in that regard. Please encourage us this morning and grow us in our love and all of our relationships, even as we celebrate Valentine's Day this year. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.